Hey, welcome to the Celebration Church Podcast. Before we jump in, I have a question for you. Have you reserved your seats yet? We've got Christmas in Nampa coming up. It's a fun church family tradition we have every year before Christmas. We get together, sing Christmas songs with candlelight and hot cocoa while we hear the story about our Savior. It's a great time to bring the whole family and friend group to. Make this your family tradition as we have Christmas in Nampa. You can get all the info and reserve your seats on Facebook or the church website. Now, let's jump into the message. Good morning, everybody. How are you doing? Well, why don't you turn to your neighbor and tell him you smell good? Turn, turn to your, your second favorite neighbor and tell him that's me. That's, that's me. I came in today. I smelled somebody. somebody. Somebody had the cologne on today. I was like, all right. Very nice. Doing good. Good to see everybody in church on uh, on Sunday morning in the middle of uh, of December. I thought we would have snow on the ground today, didn't you? Uh, I, I was hoping. Was anybody hoping that it would not snow today? Is it? Oh, oh, it hurts. It hurts a little bit. All right, all my people that wanted snow, you were desperately praying that the the, the Lord would bless us. Okay, very good. Those are my people. Uh, but I I, uh, I miss the snow sometimes. The nice thing about Idaho is you get the snow when you want it. Um, you, you can go to the snow. That's something I never grew up with. We never went to the snow. Uh, you lived in the snow, and uh, so it's it's good to be able to just get in the car and and, and go to the snow. <clears throat> um, excited about this time of year. Christmas is my, my favorite time of the year. Uh, anybody else playing George Street Christmas? Uh, got some? Come on, I got somebody that knows what's up. All right. Very good. Um, but but yeah, Christmas is a good time of the year. How many Michael Bublé, fan, Bublé fans? All right, come on. <clears throat> there we go. Uh, we watched his, uh, his Christmas special with the family the other day. It's, it's awesome. If you haven't watched it yet, you need to get on Hulu or YouTube or whatever it's on and watch the Michael Bublé special. Uh, so good. So good. Um, my wife and I got in the Christmas spirit and got um, uh, some Christmas outfits. This is us right here. <clears throat> uh, get a little, a little thugged out for Christmas. That's right. That's right. That was going to be our cards, but we figured um, maybe we needed to be a little more sophisticated, uh, like we could fool you. But... Um, <clears throat> So for Christmas Eve, we've got two services on Christmas Eve. Uh, we're doing a service on the Sunday before Christmas, which is next Sunday. And then a few days later is Christmas Eve. We're going to be doing two services. Uh, these services are actually a, a prime opportunity for you because Christmas Eve is one of the two times of a year when somebody who does not live for the Lord is willing to go to church. So your family, your friends, somebody that's kind of hesitant to get involved in the things of God, if you invite them to church on an Easter or on a Christmas, they're, they're very likely to come simply because they know it's a Christian holiday and it's a, it's a, great, a great tradition to go to church on Christmas Eve or, or Easter. And so what we see around here is usually on Christmas Eve, uh, it's probably our second biggest Sunday of the year. So we're going to open the, the curtains real wide and we've got two services, one at 4.30 and one at 6.30. And I would encourage you, uh, pick one of those and, and, and plug in, get, get, get some family members, get some friends beside you. If you just come for just the celebration of it, you're missing the opportunity. 
the opportunity is to invite somebody to, to maximize that moment. So uh, get them out for Christmas Eve, uh, December 24th at 4.30 and 6.30 uh, p.m. Good times. <clears throat> Uh, so we're, we're, we started this series we do every year. We just call it Christmas in Nampa. And um, I, I think sometimes just I, 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 I'm thinking out loud, but I would like to just not do a series and just kind of just do whatever I want to do, which is what I do anyway. But here we go. So <laughs> here we go. All right. So uh, let's put up the first verse here. Um, do I have the first verse? Okay. So this is, uh, this is the verse we used last week when we, when we spoke on this idea um, of, of peace in our lives. It begins like this. It says, now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king. It just starts, starts there. The, the, the writer of, of Matthew, the, Matthew himself, when he, when he begins chapter 2, he begins with this, this phrase that we just gloss over. Um, it, it's... Uh, it's this idea that David, Rabbi David Foreman says it's like the, uh, the, the, the lullaby effect. When you hear the same thing over and over again, you, you miss the details. And, and in this, this piece here, last week we, we pulled out the idea of, of our culture's definition of peace means there's no problems. But a biblical definition of peace using the word shalom means that you are, you are full, you're lacking nothing, even in the middle of problems. And, and, and in this, this one phrase, we're going to see that, that God is actually showing us something. He's, he's, he's giving us context to the birth of Jesus that we miss as, as Americans in, uh, in the 20th century. It says, in the days of King Herod. King, King Herod, like, King Herod was, was actually, uh, he was an Idumenian king. He was not the king of Israel. He was the king of Idumenia, which would be like Jordan. And when Rome conquers, uh, when, when, when Rome is controlling and fighting, and they, they had these, these people they would set over the area, they would like tetra, tetrarchs, they would call them, that would, that would rule the area that they had conquered. But Israel had always been a feisty bunch. They'd been fighting, 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 and they fought the entire time. This is uh, like the story of the Maccabees, Hanukkah. This, that's, what, that's what it's all about is this, this battle against Rome. And Rome gets this brilliant idea. Why don't we um, find a Jewish person that can be their king so they'll stop fighting us? <clears throat> And this man named Herod was not a Jew. Uh, he ended up, the, the Jewish people knew that Rome's plan was to bring in uh, a Jewish king. And, and so what they did is they went to the king of Idumenia. They said, would you marry one of our women and become a Jew? Now, the unique thing about Herod is Herod is the richest man who has ever lived. Bill Gates would mow Herod's lawn. To give you the scale of the kind of power that Herod had, when, when Rome, Rome had power and people, Herod had money. Herod owned the entire spice trade of the then known world from source to delivery, the entire thing. He had the monopoly. It would be like owning all of the oil in all of the world and all of the gas stations that sell it. He was very wealthy, and he, and he was very powerful. He was the kind of man that when he wanted to do something, he did whatever he felt like doing because he had the money to do it. Here's some of the, just giving you some of the, the history of Herod. So, so here we go. This is, um, this is all from, for all my Bible nerds out there. 
This is, uh, this is actually the, the sort of the foundations or, or the structure that holds up the temple mount where the, where the temple was. And when Herod rebuilt the temple, he brought in all these big stones from a rock quarry that's about five miles away. And you can see these are large stones. This one's about uh, six and a half feet tall. But the largest of these stones that, that run the baseline, the largest stone is actually under, um, it's underground. And this stone is 44 feet long. It's 11 feet high and 15 feet deep. It weighs almost 700 tons. A single stone quarried in a mine five miles away. And even our best equipment today can barely come close to lifting something. We don't have a crane that can lift 700 tons. We have cranes that lift about 600 tons. But in 2,000 years ago, Herod was able to devise ways to lift equipment or to build equipment that could lift rocks weighing 700 tons and move them around inside of a city that even in today's technology, we don't have the kind of equipment to maneuver through a city with these kind of rocks. Just incredible buildings that he would build. Herod was the guy, so let me go on further. So this is a, a, a castle that Herod had. It's, it's the Dead Sea is the, the water you see behind it. And this castle is called Masada. Masada was, was a, a castle that Herod decided to. He just chose to build a castle on top of a rock that's 900 feet tall in the middle of the desert. It sounds, sounds interesting until you realize that like nine out of the 10 largest cisterns in the world are on top of this cliff. It could hold millions and millions of gallons of water up on top of this, this mountain. And, and so they, they actually have enough water that they could have lasted for hundreds of years in the middle of a drought on top of the mountain. There was palm trees. There was a castle on top. It was, it was this massive oasis that he built on top of this, this place in the middle of nowhere. There's no city nearby, nothing. He just wanted to build a castle there, so he did. This is another thing that Herod did. So this is Masada. This one is called Caesarea Maritima. This is, this is where Ben-Hur was filmed. Do you remember that? Ben-Hur was filmed here. This is one of uh, Herod's castles, it just on the side of the Mediterranean Sea. Just, just like where the cameraman is sitting, there is, uh, is where the actual palace stood. And on the left-hand side, there is a, a freshwater swimming pool that buttresses up to the, the, the Mediterranean Sea. He was, he was extremely wealthy. He, he was very powerful. And he did another thing, because Herod, if he wanted to build something, he would just do it. He'd do whatever he wanted. And, and one of the things he wanted to do was to build another castle on top of a mountain. But where he wanted to build it, there was no mountain. And so what Herod did is he made a mountain. <clears throat> he made a mountain. He, he built a mountain out in the middle of the desert. And this right here is uh, called the Herodium. And the Herodium is in Bethlehem. So on top of this mountain, you're looking at just the, the, the fractured uh, foothills of what was once there. Imagine a palace on top of a mountain that is, this is 700 feet high that he built, that he paid for. 
that he just made happen. Herod was the kind of guy that had opulence. He had whatever he wanted in the world. He was, he was powerful and he was strong. And Jesus was born under the shadow of one of his palaces. And so when, when the writer says in the days of Herod, they're, they're, they're wanting to explain to you like in the days of economy, in the days of, of everybody building things, of these massive stoneworks, of the quarries, like, like Joseph's dad or Joseph, Jesus' dad was a, was a, a carpenter. Actually, the, the Greek word actually is that he was a stonemason, not a carpenter. And he was in Nazareth, which was one of Herod's quarries. So he probably was building stones to do this kind of stuff. Herod was the same guy that when he heard that there was a king born, he issued a decree that every child near the Herodium would die. He was powerful and he was strong. To the Jewish mind of the day, in the days of Herod, it meant something. It meant in the days when a foreign ruler made us work, when, in the days when a foreign ruler forced us to do whatever we wanted, in the days when the high priesthood was sold to the highest bidder. That's what it's saying to the Jewish mind. Because there are, in different seasons of time, there are, there are events that mark history. And in Jesus's day, Herod marked history. But in our day, I would say there's something much different that marks our moment in time. I would say that what marks our moment in time is in the days of offense. I would say that in our culture, we, we are, to define our culture, we are the culture that gets offended. We're the culture that, like, if you have an opinion different than mine, then, then I, I, I must be angry and I can't tolerate a difference or lateral thinking. I can't tolerate any difference. And, 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 we, and we live in a world where we, we let everybody that's ever known us have access to our minds. Like, everybody that you ever met that you friended on Facebook, they, they weren't actually your friend, but you friended them on Facebook. You ever meet someone you're like, it's good to meet you. We've been friends on Facebook for five years. Finally, good to meet you. Like, like, not even real friends with people, but we let them have access. We let their opinions and their thoughts have access to our hearts and our minds. And, and we wonder why we struggle with this, this insecurity of offense constantly. And it's because we live in a world that does not stop with the opinions. It does not stop with, with the, 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 the viewpoints and, 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 the, and the, the, the arguments constantly. Do you remember like the old six o'clock news back in the day? Like six o'clock news. Yeah. Now it's a 24-hour news cycle that just doesn't stop. Like it used to be if you couldn't get it out in one hour, boom, it's done. Like we're going to do that next week. No, no, now it's 24 hours a day, constant news through every sort of medium you have. And it creates a culture that is so barraged with opinions and facts and thoughts and, and caricatures that we are constantly offended. And because we're constantly offended, we have no peace. The message to the world when Jesus arrived was that you'd have peace, and yet we don't have any peace, even though we have so much technology. We struggle internally constantly. We have a thousand friends on Facebook, and we're still lonely. How is that possible? How is that possible? Listen, the quantity of your friendships does not mean quality. 
Sometimes it's, it's better to have less people that are able to speak into your life who actually care about you. Like this might be a good rule of thumb, only accept the opinions of people that actually pray for you. Like that, that's a good thing. Follow people that are praying for you, that are, that, are, that are seeking God on your behalf. Those are the kind of people you want in your life. I, I just sometimes, I, I just, we live in a culture where we just get offended. Like I'm offended that you're offended. <laughs> I, can't, I can't believe it. Like I'm so offended. I love the babies. Like our church has a lot of babies right now. I love babies because ba- babies are awesome. I can hold babies. I can, I, can, I can smile at babies. I can tickle babies. We can feed babies. We can burp them and give them back to their parents. And they don't have any opinions. It's amazing. It's amazing because we live in this world where there are so many people who, who force their opinions into our world. And, and we wonder why, why we're struggling, why we don't have enough time and emotional energy for the people we actually love. We're sitting at dinner with the people we love and we're texting somebody we don't even know arguing with them. We live in a culture that is offended offendable, a culture that, that, that struggles with offense. And, and really, we all feel like our voice should be heard, whether it's solicited or not. Like, like our voice needs to be out there. We need to, to argue with somebody. We need to stand for something. And yet, so much of the time, what we're standing for is really not something we actually believe in. Here's what... Um, <clears throat> Brother Miriam Webster says about the word offended. Uh, he says this. He says, uh, and really, like, I, I misspelled his name when I was writing this. I wrote Miriam, and I thought maybe it's a she. But it's a dude. I've never met a man named Miriam. Um, anyway, so it says this. Miriam says this. It's this English language, what it means to be offended. It says to be resentful or annoyed, typically as a result of a perceived insult. So to be, to be offended means that we, we, view, we view the situation as though we have been insulted. We're, we're, we perceive it that way. Whether it's true or not, we're offended because someone has slighted us. We're offended because we deserve to be offended. We're offended because someone has done us wrong and now we hold the, 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 the upper hand of being offended inside and being frustrated and hurt about something. It's, it's something that we hold because we perceive that we have been hurt. We perceive that we've been hurt. I want you to know that you, you actually choose what you're offended by. My dad used to say this. He said, I'd be mad. He said, Roger, you're choosing to be mad. Like, oh, I'm really choosing to be mad now. <laughs> but we choose to be offended. We choose to read into situations in ways that cause us to be hurt on the inside. It's our choice to be offended. It, 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 it's us that causes us to be offended. And, and the truth is, uh, what happens in the past as far as offense goes, something that happened to you 20 years ago still affects you today. When you choose to hold on to offense in your life, it stays with you. It's just like Christmas lights. Like anybody else have just like piles of these things sitting in the garage? You take them out once a year for three weeks. <laughs> and you wrap them around a tree and then like you draw straws. Who has to take them back off of the tree? It's the, it's the worst. But here's the deal. Every single year that we get our Christmas lights back out, I, I, I have to go through and I plug them in. And usually, like, there, there's, there's, there's at least one strand of lights 
that is all out. Uh, it works, but there's one, one light that's missing. So, so you got to go through every single, because I was raised in a home where we were frugal, right? Like my, anybody else raised in that kind of house? That's how I was raised. So my parents always bought the extra pack of lights. And it was my job as like the 10-year-old to go through every single light on the light fixture and figure out which one was broke. Like if you're really smart, you get the little gun they have at Lowe's. Like they got a little gun you can put on there and, and see if it's, if it's lit or not. But the deal is like the whole strand can be out just because one light is missing. Just one light. You could be offended in one area of your life from a long time ago and it can affect everything else you do for the rest of your life until you deal with it. You can be offended at one relationship that you had when you were in high school and you can drag it into your marriage and you're seeing them as somebody that you went to high school with that's 17 years old. Because we're offended by things and we drag them into the future with us. The truth is just like these string of lights, you can be connected and you can still be broken. You could still be plugged in and look just fine and still be broken on the inside and it affects everyone else around you because your brokenness doesn't just hurt you it hurts the people who you touch we look at people through a past prism of pain and that they never caused and we think that they think and act like people that once hurt us have you ever had a conversation with somebody and you're wondering who in the world they're talking to who they're talking to is somebody that once hurt them. And, and in the pain, the, 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 the lens of pain in their life, they're, they're talking to you, but they're really talking to the person they once were hurt by. I know I do it sometimes. Here's what it says in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 15. It says, see to it that no one uh, fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up or causes trouble and by it many become defiled. He says this, when you become bitter on the inside, when you allow just a little hint of bitterness in your life, it does not affect you, but many people will be defiled by your bitterness. You ever have somebody that's, 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 that's frustrated with someone else, they're talking about them, and, and then they tell you about it, and now you're mad at the person that they're mad at, and then like three weeks later, you see them at Starbucks, and you're like, I, how are you guys friends right now? Don't you know what he did to you? And they're like, yeah, we made up. Yeah, we're getting, we, we worked through it. They worked through it, but you never worked through it. And now you're offended at someone that didn't do anything to you because a root of bitterness affects many people. It defiles many people. So how do we overcome past hurts and past pains? Like how, do we, how do we work through these things? I know how I was taught as a kid. I was taught to, to memorize Bible verses. Come on, somebody. <clears throat> I was taught to memorize Bible verses through song as a kid. And so we were told anytime we were mad at somebody, we'd have to sing this little, this little song. It said, be ye kind one to another. Tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven thee. Ephesians four thirty-two. Do <laughs> right. Hey, mom and dad, listen up, guys. It's important to get your kids to memorize scripture because I, I, I'm, I'm a grown man and I still remember that. Like it, 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 it's, it sticks with you. 
And the deal is like, when my mom would, she, we, me and my sisters would be yelling at each other, screaming at each other. And also my mom would just walk in the room like, be kind one to another. It's, it's a lot easier to tell someone to forgive, but, but the problem is the, the scripture commands us to forgive, and, and it's so hard. Like, it's easy to do stuff that we don't, that we want to do. Like, like, if I was to tell my children, like, hey, would you just shoot your brother with that Nerf gun? They'd be all over. They'd be like, yes, please. <laughs> but when I say, would you please prefer someone else over you, or would you let someone else, uh, would, would you take the low road and let someone else be okay even though you're offended? Like, would you not hold that over them? Would you not be offended by them? That's hard because we want to be offended because we deserve to be offended because they've mistreated us. We hold on to past pains. We, we hold on to past struggles. It, it, it's what we do. We look for reasons. We look for reasons to stay offended in our lives. I, um, my, my, one of my kids, my youngest one, I, I was going to say one of them, but it's my youngest one. Uh, <clears throat> like for the past two months, he's been sneaking out of his bed every night and it will like come sneaking downstairs and, and they have a bedtime pretty early. We're early compared to most parents. We, we just find that like their chances of survival in the morning are much higher, uh, if, if they get a lot of sleep. And so, uh, we, we, we put them to bed early and he'll come downstairs and he'll, he'll try to, he'll, he'll try to get into stuff and, and do something. We're like, go back to bed. And he'll go up to bed and and then you hear him fooling around, and then you hear like this, this slippery sound on the stairs, like this whoosh, whoosh, whoosh. And he's like snuck down the stairs, and he's trying to look at the TV and see what's going on, and get back in your bed, right? Like, like and it's always, he's always got a reason. He he's, needs water. He forgot to brush his teeth. He is trying to find his clothes for tomorrow. He's looking for his backpack for the morning. Like, like he's always got a reason. And the truth is, we always have a reason. Why we should be offended. But you don't know how she spoke to me. You don't know the tone he had. You don't know what they said they were going to do that they didn't do. You don't see, you don't understand how I, how I'm able to perceive or see that I was slighted by somebody. I want you to know that in English, it says that, that offense is, is when we perceive that we have been been robbed or hurt by somebody, but the biblical term for offense is much different. The biblical term for offense doesn't mean that you have a right to hold something against somebody. It's, it's actually, here's what, it, I'll give you context. Matthew chapter 24 verse 10 says this, and then many will be offended and they will betray one another and will hate one another. This is speaking of last days. That many people are going to be offended at one another, going to hate one another, going to betray. The word offended there is not the same as our word offended. The word offended in Greek is the word scandalon, which is the same word that our word scandal comes from. But it doesn't mean that, you've been, that you have a perceived wrong. It means the movable pin, the trigger, or the stick of a snare or a trap. The Greek word for offense is not that you have been hurt. The Greek word is that it is a trigger on a trap. It's like this. Right here. <laughs> That's what offense is. 
Offense is the trigger of the trap. Offense is not that you have been wronged or slighted. Offense is a bait setting on top of a trigger waiting for you to make a mistake and have you ever wondered why it's so hard to get past an offense? It's because it's not just that you've been hurt inside, it's that it has clamped onto your life. It is a trap. When some, people will always do things to get under your skin. People will always say things that rub you the wrong way. People will always not do things that you think they should do or do things you think they should not do. And it is always an opportunity to step on a trap. Something that will hold you captive for the rest of your life at a moment in time that really, when it all boils down to it, if, if you had clear conversation with them, it probably wasn't intended anyway. But it's a trap. It holds us tight. It, it keeps us from everything that God wants in our lives. It's, it's called offense. It's like we're, we're mad about, like I know, I know grown men, 40 years old, still mad about what somebody said when they were 12 years old. I know women who, who, are, who are grown women. They, they've, they've been successful in life, but they're still offended by something that some teacher said in school saying they wouldn't be able to amount to much in life. And what I'm saying is you can let those things be a trap that'll hold you down, or you can choose to say, I'm going to release that person from the pain, and I'm going to move on with my life. Move on with your life. So how does offense happen? What does the trap usually look like? It usually looks like someone betraying you or like, at least you feeling like they betrayed you. It feels like someone falsely accusing you, saying you did something you didn't do. That's an offensive thing or maybe it's rejection for you. I want you to know that Jesus experienced all of these and more. This man that was born under the shadow of the Herodium in the age of Herod, he knew what it was like to live in the age of offense. Here's what it says in Luke chapter 23, verse 34. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. He is being crucified. He's being whipped on a post, and his response is, Father, forgive them. For they don't know what they do. If there's ever been a trap of offense, it's when somebody is hitting you with a whip. Luke chapter 6, Jesus says this, Bless those who curse you and pray for those who spitefully use you. I've got a verse that I think is probably more appropriate for many of us. It says this, Psalm chapter 3 verse 7. You may want to write this one down and put it on your refrigerator. It says, arise, O Lord, rescue me, my God, slap all my enemies in the face, and shatter the teeth of the wicked. Uh, that's Christmas in a tracksuit, Jesus, right there. But Jesus teaches us to, to forgive those that use us. Have you ever been used by someone? That's not a good feeling. And Jesus says, you're going you're gonna, to you're gonna forgive them. You're going to pray for people that hurt you and offend you. Because offense is not a feeling that we have. Offense is a trap. It is a snare. It is the trigger on a trap. And it will hold you in the place in life where you're at right now for the rest of your life if you allow offense to grab you.
Jesus tells us to forgive because his ways, they're not our ways. Our ways are to go to court. Let them have it. I heard this on the news, on the radio. There's some, some lawyer was, was, was advertising, and there's a lawyer in the room. I'm not against lawyers. I just thought it was a, an interesting ad, just talking about, like, if, if there's somebody you need me to teach a lesson to, I'll teach him a lesson. <laughs> like, that's a great Christmas ad. Thanks for that. Like, how, like, how about you run an ad, like, telling people not to drive drunk? Like, that might be better. Like, I, like, <clears throat> but, but here's the deal. Like, like Jesus' way is not to eye for an eye. It's not to get even. It's not Hammurabi's law that like if you hurt someone, they take out your tooth, you take out their tooth. That's not Jesus' way. Jesus' way is to show forgiveness to every single person that has been the bait on the tip of the trap. You realize they're not the trap. Like, like, like your niece is not the trap. She's just the bait on the trap. Like, like there is an enemy of your soul that is going through the life that you live looking for opportunities to set a trap underneath something. Yes. Conversations, situations, people puts a trap under it. They're not the trap. They're just what he's using as bait. <clears throat> They're just what he's using as bait. I, I want you to know that, that like God has a plan for your life. You can't retaliate enough against someone that has hurt you to find peace. You can't cover something up long enough to find hope. You cannot isolate yourself enough to find joy. And you cannot hide from the pain. God is the only answer to the things that have offended you in this life. And his solution is to forgive. So how do we find, how do we find God's forgiveness in the middle of like craziness? I, I, I wonder if there's uh, anybody had brought a snow globe today. Anybody bring a snow globe? Did you bring a snow globe for real? Oh my goodness! Look at this. Ah. You came, you came prepared, Grant. Good job. Come on. Come on. Give him a hand. That's, that's how you... You guys thought you were supposed to bring Bibles to church. The Flamings know you bring a snow globe to church. <clears throat> this is a sweet little... You know what? They're, they must be out of style because I searched all over town looking for one of these. Nobody had one. I finally found it this morning after like forever of searching. Um, but this one actually has a cool little light. It's not working. It worked before I gave it to you. <laughs> but here's the deal. Like, you ever have a, have a snow globe that just sits there and it looks so pretty. It just looks so cute. But, it, but, it, but really, there's, there's not much going on. It's like a winter wonderland. It, 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 it's like it, it should be the perfect world, but there's really no life to it. It, it should be the perfect world, but when you, when you begin to look at it for a while, it just, it, it, it's missing something. And what you see, a snow globe, the reason it's, it's missing something is a snow globe was designed with a user in mind. A snow globe was designed with an operator in mind. It's not like a picture that just sits on a wall that you look at. A snow globe is intended to involve someone from outside of it. 
And your life is not like a picture that is supposed to be hung on a wall somewhere. Your life was built with an operator in mind, and the operator is God himself. And when we look at our life and think it just looks stagnant, it looks still, there's nothing going on, there's pieces missing. I'm telling you, when you allow the God of heaven to invade your world and challenge you on something as crazy as forgiveness, I'm telling you, your life will become a beautiful prism of hope. A beautiful prism of hope. When you allow God into your life, everything changes. Everything changes. In order for you to overcome offense, it won't happen by yourself, but it happens through the mercy and the grace of God. Here's what Tim Keller says. He says, God's grace and forgiveness, while free to the recipient, are always costly to the giver. From the earliest parts of the Bible, it was understood that God could not forgive without sacrifice. And no one who is seriously wronged can just forgive a perpetrator. But when you forgive, that means you absorb the loss and the debt and you bear it all yourself. All forgiveness then is costly. If you're going to let somebody off the hook in your life, it's going to take every ounce of energy you've got. It's going to take a lot of mental effort and it's going to take a choice that says, I will live beyond my offense. Living with unforgiveness in your life is like smoking a cigarette and blowing it in somebody else's face and saying, I hope you get cancer. The only person it's really affecting is you. So the question would be then, I, okay, I can forgive somebody, but at what point do I stop forgiving? Because this knucklehead keeps doing it over and over. They keep coming down the stairs every day. <laughs> Anybody else love with teenagers that's like they, their listener got turned off? Yeah. Why are you so upset, Dad? Well, just listen. <laughs> Won't be upset. At what point do I stop forgiving? Matthew 18 says this. Then Peter came to him and he asked, Lord, how often should I forgive someone who sins against me? Seven times? Like, I'm being generous. What do you think? Maybe seven times for the same thing? That's probably pretty good. And Jesus says, no, not seven times. Jesus replies, 70 times seven. Jesus says 490 times you should forgive someone. So somebody's like, okay, cool. I'm going to put a spreadsheet out and I'm going to make sure <laughs> F 491, they're done. <laughs> Missing the point. The point is you cannot calculate. The point is as many times as the offense comes, your job is to get beyond the offense. Your job is to not put your hand on the trigger. Your job is to say, I will release you from the burden of it every single time. This doesn't mean that, that like you need to stick around toxic people. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying you need to put your hand right back down with the dog that bit you. What he's saying is you need to extend the goodness towards him. He doesn't say you need to reconcile every relationship and go right back into business with them. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is you need to say, I forgive you. Let's move on. 
He's not saying forgiveness means getting back with an abusive spouse. That's not what we're talking about. Reconciliation is the rebuilding of a relationship. Jesus commands forgiveness, not reconciliation of a broken relationship where someone is being abused. All right. Thank you. I feel a little little angry today. I don't know why. (laughs) Sometimes, Sometimes you get a grouchy preacher. Jesus says you're going to forgive them 70 times 7. Why? You're going to keep forgiving them over and over and over because Jesus had a plan for his disciples and his plan was that they would flip the world on its head. His plan was that they would be the mechanism by which the world would know the gospel. And Jesus says you're going to forgive and you're going to forgive and you're going to forgive. He says you're going to you're not going to let the sun go down on your wrath. Like he's saying you, you might be angry at somebody, you might be mad at somebody, but by 5:10 today like in Canyon County, 510 today is when the sun goes down. So you can be angry all day long, but by 510, you got to forgive them. Because the sun can't go down on your wrath. Why? Because these disciples are world changers. They're supposed to flip the world on its head. And Jesus says, the enemy of your soul is going to put traps all around you. It's going to be a trap here and a trap there and a trap here and a trap there. You've got to be the kind of people that are unoffendable. It doesn't mean you don't get hurt. It doesn't mean people do things that that do hurt your feelings. What it means is I refuse to put my finger on the trap of offense. I refuse to sit on something somebody said. I refuse to sit on somebody that someone did or or they didn't do in my life. I choose to be completely unoffendable so that I can accomplish all that God called me to do. Deuteronomy chapter 33 says that as the days are, so should your strength be. What that means is, is this idea that your strength, the inner energy you have is enough for every single day. It's not enough when you keep compiling day and day and day and day. When you keep pulling an offense and offense and offense and offense. Now you've got a mountain of offense over you. And you're like, this, this is just too much for me to bear. Yes, it is. Jesus said that you have the strength for a day, not the strength for a lifetime, not the strength for yesterday and the day before that. You have the strength for today. So it's time to begin forgiving people, letting them off the past, that leader in your life that spoke things to you that hurt you inside. Let them off because it's hurting you today. Well, what I'm saying is like we would cut down on doctor bills. We would cut down on pharmacy bills. We would cut down on vitamin bills if we would allow for forgiveness in our lives. Like hypertension, like all kind of mental problems. Like there's a lot of science behind the physical effects on your body of holding on to offense. And I'm telling somebody today, you might still be mad at your ex-spouse, but the only way you're going to get beyond it is when you say, I choose to do good to you whether you deserve it or not. Not, I choose to get right back to get, like I choose to do good towards you. Not, I want to put my hand right back in that trap. I choose to let you off the hook in my life. To reconcile, to mend the relationship is something different. Listen, hear me. Forgiving someone is letting them off the hook. It's, It's you saying, I'm not going to be held captive by the trap. But to mend a relationship, it requires three things. And they are not, I forgive you. The first is repentance. The person that hurts you has to feel bad about it. And they have to change their ways. Repentance 
restitution. You want to do business with that person again? If there's going to be any mending of the relationship, there has to be restitution. You're not going to hire that employee that stole from you until they pay it all back. And then you're going to hire them for free. (laughs) Restitution. Repentance, restitution. And the third one is restoration of trust over time. There are some things that are not quick fixes. We put ourselves in some situations that will not be mended just in praying at an altar. There are some things in our lives that we do that will take decades to get beyond. There are some things in our life that will take years to work through to be able to mend a relationship over time. But your job is just to forgive. Your job is to say, I will not be held captive by offense. I will not be held captive by someone I once loved. I will not be held captive by someone that I once followed who hurt me. I will not be held captive. I choose to forgive. Would the band come forward? So many of us are walking through life with a dozen people sitting on our shoulders, reminding us of how people will treat us, reminding us of why we can't trust people. When you go to bed at night and you're struggling just to to find some peace and you're popping a melatonin, the problem isn't that you need melatonin. The problem is you got too many people in your bedroom. You got too many people in your head. You've got to forgive. You've got to forgive. It's funny because a message like this is the simplest one to say. But if you would receive it, this would be the most challenging message you've heard all year. This will be the kind of message that can change your life forever. If you choose to live as Jesus did, to forgive those people that spitefully used you, to pray for people that hurt you. Say, I choose to do good. I'm not going to jump back in the car with you, but I choose to do good. I think so many of us struggle with forgiveness for one reason. It's that we've never been forgiven. So foreign. Why should I let them off the hook? And I want you to know that today, right now, you can receive the kind of forgiveness that will give you the clearest of minds, the most transparent heart you've ever had. Right now in this room, you can receive the forgiveness of God. Would you all stand with me? Father, I pray right now, Lord, that the people in this room who are walking through the frustrations of the holiday season, dealing with people they haven't had to deal with in a year, that today they would choose to forgive, that today 
we would release them. Lord, that your Holy Spirit would flow through us, that it wouldn't just be for our sakes, but we would extend the grace and the mercy of God to those around us, that we would choose to be unoffendable. As your head still down, still every eye closed, there's somebody in this room today and you realize that your big thing is you just need forgiveness yourself. You're one of those that at the end of the day, you need to experience forgiveness. If that's you, would you just put your hand up so I can see it? No one else is looking around. I see that. I see that. Come on. Come on. Beautiful. Beautiful. Here's what I want you to do. We're going to ask God to forgive us. And when we do, I want you to know this. The Bible says he's faithful and just because he's going to do it. So right now, God, I'm sorry. I know that I've let you down. I feel like I've let myself down. Please forgive me. I'm turning around right now. I'm making a mark in the sand right now. I'm turning around. And I choose to live my life the way you're asking me to live. God, please be the Lord of my life. Be my God. I'm going to follow you, and I'm going to put all my trust in you. Be my God. Here's what I want to tell you. The Bible says this, that when we confess our sins to God, and we do what you just did where you said, God, I'm sorry. The Bible says he is faithful and just to forgive every sin. That means he has already done it. It means it's a statement I can say about you. So I'm gonna tell you this. Listen, this is for you. You are forgiven. You're forgiven. Let's give him a hand. Come on. Thank you again for listening in. If you have a moment, we'd love to hear how God impacted you through this message. And we'd love your help by spreading the word, by rating, reviewing, and sharing the podcast. But more than that, we'd love to see you in person this Sunday. We want you to be a part of the family. If you want to find out more about Celebration Church or partner with us through giving, you can find us online at thecelebration.church or find us on Facebook. Let's continue to love God, love people, and change the world.